Travis and Andrea, it is really wonderful to be here with your, 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 you and your children, your extended family. I know you've got a lot of family members here and with your uh, family and friends who love you and call you friend and brother here at Church of the Lamb. Um, I'm grateful to be able to ordain you and to anticipate your strengthened and expanded ministry at Lamb and in our diocese. I know that we're going to be the beneficiary and uh, you're going to, God's going to use you to change all of us. And we are very grateful for that. And um, looking forward to your increasing friendship and your fellowship in Christ and your ministry among us. Now, obviously, this service is focused on Travis and his ordination. But nevertheless, I trust, as I said earlier, that God is going to use his living word and the power of the Spirit as he promises to do and speak to all of us. And that we'll be prepared and open for what the Lord has to say to us. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bring ourselves before you, and we open our hearts before you, and we ask you that you will pour out your Spirit upon us to enable us to be fully present to you, and to hear what you would speak, and to receive what you have to say. And Lord, may we all be changed through the power of your Word, and the power of your Spirit, to the glory of God, and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. I've chosen three texts plus the psalm, and all but one of them is among the standard texts that are given for uh, the ordination of a deacon. Uh, I'm going to draw a key principle from uh, two of those texts uh, that are normative. I'm not going to mention the psalm, but I'm also going to draw a key principle from the text in Numbers 12, which is not a normative text for a diaconal ordination. If you were listening uh, to what uh, Scott read, you might have raised your eyebrows, and what in the world are we reading that one for? Um, and I can pretty well guarantee you that this may be the only ordination service you ever hear in Numbers 12 uh, read or preached. But there is a method to my madness, and I think you'll understand by the time we get there. I want to start with the gospel passage. Uh, this is the clear teaching of Jesus to all his disciples to be constantly ready to meet Christ the master at any and every moment. This alertness, this vigilance, this readiness. And there are familiar images of readiness. But, you know, you can't read those without being powerfully reminded yourself. There are this image of your loins girded, ready for action, which echoes the command to Israel at the beginning of the Exodus. When they were to be ready to move at any moment, in fact, that last meal they were to be eating standing up so that they would be ready to go. Uh, it's Peter's image as he calls uh, disciples to be ready as followers of Jesus Christ to live faithfully in a world that misunderstands them and hates them. And he says to uh, disciples, be, have your loins girded. And of course, you can know that Peter knew what he was talking about because he had to do that every time he fished, right? He had to wrap his robes up and tie them up and get them out of the way so he could throw the nets out or pull the nets in. Peter was also riffing off this parable, have your lamps trimmed full of oil burning bright, which Jesus speaks, which is an image which suggests the filling of the Holy Spirit and the purity of personal holiness. And then in this uh, parable, there's also the image of your ears vigilantly tuned to the voice, the knock, the sound of the master. And so all this readiness, this vigilance, it talks about your loins being girded, your lamps being trimmed, and your ears being tuned in. Three strong images about vigilant readiness and holiness and allegiance. 
Now, if you notice, however, there's nothing specific in this text that speaks distinctly to deacons, right? The word deacon doesn't show up, in, at least in our translations. There's a little bit of a, uh, a catch here on that. But it is the standard gospel um, passage for diaconal ordinations. Why is that true? And I think it's because it speaks primarily of the servant-master relationship. It speaks of the allegiance and attentiveness of a servant to his master. And Travis, your very ordination as a deacon, diakonos, is the same word used typically for servant. Now, it's not the word that's used here. Actually, the word here in Greek is doulos, which means bondservant, which means you volunteered for this. You didn't get captured for it. You voluntarily are here. But in that process, it's the same point is being made. You and your allegiance as a servant to the master are called to be fully alert, fully present. You're ready for action. Your lamp is trimmed. We're not hanging off issues of unholiness. The Spirit of God, the oil of the Spirit is at work in your life. And you're listening to the one voice. This is a fierce call to be alert and ready to hear the Lord. Give Him your full attention. And we can add to that calling of servanthood an essential, essential principle of the ministry of a deacon. You're called to be an example to the rest of us. You are anointed and called and ordained to lead from within the flock at Church of the Lamb. And it's a leadership by force of example. By embodiment, you are to be for us what we are to be. And when it comes to this alertness, we see in you what we are to be. By example, living as one who is ready for action and holy, an exemplary servant that spurs us on to follow your example. And you have that special opportunity as one of us, from among us. It is a call to a radical level of servanthood to the master. And that is what you're supposed to show all of us how to be. Recently, I was reflecting on the icon, sort of a pre-image of diaconal ministry in the specific of calling of the Levites within the temple service in the Old Testament. They were given a task which called for submission and service to the Aaronic priesthood. God says he gave the Levites as a gift to the priests. They had the role of doing everything needed so that the sacrificial service of the priests could continue uninterrupted. They were charged with carrying the poles, all the paraphernalia, the ark when it moved around, the tabernacle, all the equipment. They ministered in the sanctuary in between the holy place and the holy of holies. And they stood like a fence around the holy of holies to protect that place and that space and that time so the priests could focus on their ministry. And they did everything else to make it happen. And that central thing that they didn't do. They received a tithe from the offerings of the whole nation. But then they in turn had to tithe to the priests. Go figure. You know what I mean? You can read all that. And we live in this fiercely egalitarian world. And you can't help but kind of come the thought what a humbling, submissive, and even subservient position they held in the nation of Israel. And you know what the answer to that is? Yep. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And there, you're setting an example for us about always looking beyond us to make sure that the most important things get happen. Taking care of whatever we need to take care of so that God can do his most central work in our lives. 
I want you to think of Barnabas. He is a servant leader in the New Testament, and he's greatly admired. I remember, I mean, I've been around this for a long time. I've been following Jesus for, you know, well over 50 years now. And Barnabas always has shown up over the course of the decades as somebody that people really admire. He was radical in his generosity. Remember, he sold his land and gave it to the, they gave it to the church. He bridged Paul into the church in Jerusalem. Paul was there, and people were scared of him. Barnabas was the guy who took him in and brought him in and said, guys, you can trust him. He accompanied Paul to Antioch in order to serve alongside of and there eventually he made way for Paul and he took the second chair of leadership. So he got off the first chair in order to take the second chair so Paul could have the first chair. An incredible humility about all of that. Later on he intervened on behalf of John Mark because Paul wrote him off. And Barnabas said, okay, I'll take the second chair, I'll take the third chair, I'll take the fifth chair in order to hang by a guy named John Mark and work out whatever he needs to work out so that he can be restored. Incredible servant, right? Incredible example. Guess what? Barnabas was a Levite. <laughs> he was from the tribe of Levi. He was the tribe, from the tribe that served, that bridged, that did whatever was needed in order that others might rise and succeed in their ministries. So Travis, you're to do that for us. Help everybody in this church do their ministry. Do whatever is necessary. Regardless of whether or not God calls you to a different level of ordination later in your ministry, you will always be a deacon. You will always show us how to live for the one voice that matters the most. Now, those themes of diaconal service and submission are also evident in the Acts passage. Seven men were chosen to be set aside for the menial work of waiting on tables, that making sure that vulnerable women were cared for and honored. The only comment that I want to make from that text is while their servant calling is clear, they also clearly ministered in their own particular gifting and calling beyond that menial service. We only know about two of those people in detail, Stephen and Philip. But what we know is both about Stephen and Philip is that they exercise their gifts. So I can imagine Stephen, who was, by the way, a very gifted preacher and apologist and evangelist. As soon as the tables were set and served and he knew that the widows were taken care of, he raced to the corner synagogue so he could preach Jesus to the people who didn't, you know, who he wanted to hear, who he wanted to declare Christ to. Philip had that same mold. He worked at the table. But then apparently he was an incredible apostle because he was the one who opened up Samaria to the gospel. He was the one that God sent on a magic carpet ride. <laughs> to talk to the Ethiopian and open up the, gospel, open up the country of Ethiopia. He must have been a fairly good dad because he had seven daughters who were prophetesses. So he's a good disciple maker at home. So you see a guy who was called the menial service, but nevertheless was using his gifts. So what I want to say to you, Travis, is, is that while you are called to this theme of servanthood, which we're emphasizing here, you're also called to use your particular gifts. And it, you know, as I was thinking about that, I was praying for you. I'm going, what, what are the gifts that I see already evident? I mean, all these other people around here know much more than I do about you. But I always know that you're a person who takes responsibility to build whatever needs to be built to make sure that this thing we call Church of the Lamb is built properly. You're a gifted builder. You are a person who, if there is a spiritual gift of accessibility and friendship, you got it. Because people love to call you friend. They love to hang out with you. 
They know that you're going to give them full attentiveness. You're going to listen well. And my experience of you in the times we've had to talk is what's remarkable to me is how attentively you listen to what I have to say, which calls me to make sure I say something worth listening to, right? So thank you, brother. I appreciate it. So if your ordination infuses these qualities with a greater impact uh, for Christ, that means that you're going to use all those same kinds of gifts to do the work that God has called you to do, but you're gonna, it's, it's going to become exponentialized. But I have to ask, what new gifts is God going to give you today? I don't know. This is a sacramental moment when the Spirit of God comes upon you, and we don't know for sure what's going to happen. Watch out. <laughs> Let's see. Be open. First passage, radical servanthood. Second passage, use your gifts. Now we turn to that quirky passage in Numbers. <laughs> so now, you guys, what, what we, why did we do that one? You know, there's so many questions raised. Why is, first of all, why does Aaron seem to get a free pass <laughs> when Marion pays a stiff price, right? Did that cross your mind? What about this issue of public shaming, which we see as a universally wrong, and yet God just sort of, you know, just mentions it and moves on? Well, I don't want to get stuck on all that, okay, because I want to see a bigger picture here. The larger message from Numbers chapter 12 is that this passage powerfully embodies a picture of the people of God in the world. This is a very visual image. The nation of Israel just left Egypt about a year ahead. They traveled to the foot of Mount Sinai and they were there for a little bit over 11 months. And for 11 months, God gave them his word, his commands. He told them how to live. Half the book of Exodus, all of the book of Leviticus, and half of the book of Numbers were all from the Mount Sinai. They were at the base of Mount Sinai. Now they've moved on. They've begun to move, and they're moving toward Cana. So I want you to picture this. They're in between these two established world systems, Egypt on one side, Cana on the other, and they're this in-between time when they're being taught to be the people of God. Egypt is civilized and powerful and politically sophisticated and organized. It's an economic powerhouse. It's an academic powerhouse. It's systematically, consciously opposed to the identity and the character and the morals and the laws and the authority of God, Yahweh. Pharaoh sees himself as God in the flesh. Did you know that? That's the reason he was willing to think he could go toe-to-toe. Because -to -toe, he thought he could take it on. Because he really did believe that he was equal to or better than any other so-called God. So the uh, Egyptian system, even though it was very sophisticated from a structural point of view, at its heart was nevertheless opposed to God fiercely. And the battles that led to the deliverance of Israel through the Passover were power encounters. Political, military, intellectual, and ultimately religious. On the other side of this conversation is Canaan. Tribal, chaotic, sensual, sexual, immoral, violent, decadent, yet compellingly attractive to the Jews. In the wilderness, Israel occasionally would look back to Egypt because that looked like safety and security. The food was good and all this kind of stuff, but there was no ever indication when they were slaves in Egypt that they bought into the Egyptian lifestyle, right? Never see that. But in everyday life throughout the rest of their history, Israel was drawn to live like Canaan. It's temptations of the flesh. It's offer of sexual indulgence. It's riotous living. 
I think it's really interesting because every once in a while we encounter, we encounter some people who are really caught in the system of power and intellect and the academy and so on. And they're kind of this philosophically opposed to God. We'll run into those. But just about everybody we run into is sensually drawn toward the life of Canaan and its pleasures. Israel was in between those two worlds. And for a year, God taught them in depth about sacrifice and worship, about rhythms of life based on Sabbath and holy days and worship. Worship, worship, worship. He taught them about holiness, sexual purity, honesty, truth-telling, fairness, justice, ethical financial dealings, morals that spanned every dimension of life. They learned in that that Yahweh himself is holy and fierce and unrelenting in his opposition to sin. Remember when he says, don't come near the mountain? Not because he didn't want to be close to people, but because he knew the power of his holiness and the sinfulness of humanity. And he knew that light would eventually obliterate darkness. Israel, the people of God, were called to a fierce holiness and honoring God and fearing God. Throughout this all, he's teaching them to obey his word. So there would be a people of the word of God, to listen to what God says. And then finally, listen to me, he taught them about radical compassion. Again, so different than Egypt, so different than Canaan. They were to be reminders, they were always being reminded that they had been slaves and captives in Egypt. So they were to treat sojourners and strangers and foreigners with sympathy and understanding. They were to have a characteristic of hospitality open-heartedness. Servants were given the days off. They never had that in Egypt, I guarantee you. Their wages of the servants were to be paid on the day that the work was done. They were told to leave the edges of their fields for the poor and leave plenty of grapes and olives unharvested. Do you ever read that stuff where it says, when you beat the olive tree, do it once, but don't do it twice? Because about half of them are going to be left still on there and leave them for other people. They were to treat widows and orphans with justice and protect them from exploitation. There was to never to be usury, no greed. You can't charge each other interest even. Radical compassion. Unusual people. They were between two worlds. And they were called to be radically different from both worlds by four measures. Worship, obedience to the word, holiness, and compassion. Both of those worlds this was different. Numbers 12 is a small story that puts it all together. What do I mean? Miriam and Aaron failed to listen to the word of God and honor the person that God had set apart to be the leader. They started complaining against him and rebelling against him. They were actually treating God and his will cavalierly. Like we have the authority to rewrite the book. Has anybody ever tried to do that with you with the Bible? I mean, let me rewrite. Yeah, I don't like that part of it. I mean, yeah, I have a different idea. Miriam paid a huge price. Leprosy, public shame, and severe discipline. She was sent outside the camp. Think with me. Miriam was 12 years old when Moses was born. Moses is at least 81 years old. Miriam is 93. Well, how do we treat 93-year-old women who have fatal diseases? What do we do with them? It's, it's over. You know what I mean? It's over. Whatever you do, it's over. She's sent outside the camp. She's sitting there. And for seven days, for seven days, she sits outside the camp. Well, what did the nation of Israel do for those seven days? Come on. What did they do? 
They waited. They waited for one old lady who was sick. And they couldn't take a step until she was healed. Do you understand what God has just said about the value of one life? The value of a person that our world would say, we're done. But God says, I will hold hundreds of thousands of people waiting for her to be restored. Because she is important to you. She's important to this people. She's important to the people of God. Brother, and all of you, this is the people of God. We are called to be like that. We are called to worship God, to obey God, to be holy and to be compassionate and to see the value of one single person. So that if there is a person and they're old or they're sick, they are still made in the image of God. And they are valuable till God says they're done. And they're valuable even more so after that. So do you realize what a radical people you are called to serve, my brother? Do you realize how different we are to be? Kevin said at the beginning, this worship stuff is different. This is not a normal Sunday morning service activity for a lot of people. But this is just the tip of the iceberg. We are called to be a different people. Worshiping God, obeying God, pursuing holiness, and treating each other with a compassion and a love and a tenderness that spills out into how we act in the world. Because we take that same kind of love and compassion and value for the individual into the world. This is the church you are called to serve. This is the church you are called to exemplify and help us become. So brother, what a great place you are in. What a great dream, what a great vision to help us become the kind of people that are being described in the Word of God. May God bless you and strengthen you to this end. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.